0: Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we are continuing on in this glorious epistle that the Lord has given to us. And picking up where we left off last week at the end of chapter 10, we will be in verse number 1 this morning of Romans chapter 11. So hear now the word of the Lord. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to the God of Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living supernatural and inerrant word. Lord, for this pure, perfect, good gift that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, that, that your spirit works through your word to accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us, and we pray to that end that your spirit, by your word, would transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ, even as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, and I pray for myself as I preach your word. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we enter chapter 11 today, and and that means we are entering what is the last of what is called the theological chapters of Romans. From from chapter 12 through the rest of the book, that's known as the practical portion of the book. And if you know anything about me, you know that I hate that deeply from the very pit of my soul. Doctrine and theology is intensely practical. There is nothing more practical than a right understanding of God, and that's what doctrine is. That's what theology is. It is what we believe about God. Nothing is more practical than that. And, of course, Paul's Paul's teaching about living the Christian life in chapters 12 through 16 is entirely built on the theology of chapters 1 through 16. Eleven, without that foundation of doctrine that Paul lays, all that follows is just a list of do's and don'ts. But, But all of God's do's and don'ts are therefore do's and therefore don'ts. Because this is true, here's how we live. And so to separate those two things upsets me on a deep level. But chapter 11 is also the last chapter in, 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 a, in a little three-chapter section in which Paul is addressing why is it that Israel, God's Old Testament covenant people, have rejected their Messiah? Why have they turned their back on the gospel? Paul's been addressing that issue for two chapters now as we have worked our way through Romans. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 form really from Paul a three-part argument where Paul is giving three answers to this question, why has Israel rejected God? And what does that mean about God? What does that mean about the promises of God? And so in in chapter 9, if you'll remember, Paul says to us in, in his first answer, we must look at the sovereignty of God if we're going to understand what's going on with Israel, especially as it relates to God's electing love and mercy, whereby he chooses specific individuals for salvation according to his own good purposes. Paul's first answer in chapter 9 is we have, to, we have to understand that. We have to look at that if we're going to understand this question. In chapter 10, his second answer has to do with man's responsibility, even especially as it relates to the essential, central nature of saving faith. And of course, in that chapter, he speaks of Israel's unbelief as the ultimate example of their disobedience to God. They would not obey God, and proof positive is they won't obey the gospel. They won't believe. It is is their knowing, willful disobedience to obey the gospel that Paul points to. that, That is why they refuse to call on the name of the Lord. That is why they refuse to believe, and that is why they have not received God's promised salvation. Now, in chapter 11, Paul makes another argument, another line of reasoning to help us understand Israel's rejection of the gospel and how that relates to the promises of God. But before we get into chapter 11, I want to address why this teaching is actually practical for us, because we might be tempted to think that it's not. We might be tempted to wonder, how is the subject of Israel and the overall plan of God relevant for Christians living in northern Indiana in 2022? Well, what does that have to do with us? It's certainly not the kind of thing they're talking about in most churches this morning. So so why does it matter? It might feel speculative, theoretical to you, disconnected from day-to-day living. So, so what is it that we are supposed to learn from what God teaches here about his plan of salvation and Israel's part in that in particular? Well, well first, these chapters that, that we are studying together right now remind us of the importance of a vital relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first big takeaway as we look at, at what Paul has to tell us about Israel. When we look back at Israel... We're not supposed to just look through the corridors of history and judge them and go, oh man, boy, they blew it. Not like me. Oh, not like us. When we look at Israel, what do we see? We see a people who had been exposed to the scriptures their whole lives. We see a people who had been exposed to the promises of God. They knew them. They had received faithful preaching, not for a matter of years, But for generations, for for centuries, this people had received these gifts from the Lord, and yet they did not know God truly. We, We need that reminder, especially we who live in this religious community in which we live. People can go through all kinds of efforts to know God, and in the end, still end up not knowing Him at all. And so we, we need this reminder. We, we, we need to, to, to see to it that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, that we are receiving him by faith alone, that we are walking in obedience that is born out of an actual, genuine, personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that, that makes what Paul says here so very relevant to us. Secondly, these chapters remind us of the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. Paul's responding to the basic question, can God be trusted? If God says something, can we trust him in that? That's a very practical question for Christians living in the world in which we live. Did God fail to keep his promise to Israel? Well, the answer to that question matters an awful lot. Not only theologically, because... When we answer that question, we're saying something about God, and it matters what we say about God. We we don't want to be guilty of accusing God of being unfaithful. We don't want to be guilty of accusing God of lying. But also, it's a vital question for us to ask, because if the answer is yes, God was unfaithful in his promises to Israel, then how can we know he'll keep his promises to us in his word? If he was unfaithful to Israel, what's to keep him from being unfaithful to the church? That is an intensely practical thing to know. It is intensely practical for us to know God is actually faithful. Third then, these chapters remind us what our attitude ought to be towards the Jewish people. We, we ought to have a sincere desire to see them brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in, in the earliest days of the church, the Jews were fierce persecutors of the Christians. But over the years, as the church spread and became more and more Gentile or non-Jewish, a kind of payback started to work itself out. A kind of hostility began to grow towards the Jews among even Christians, where Christians looked like the rest of the world in hating the Jews. At times, it even produced Christian persecution of the Jews. But Paul shows us here that our heart should be quite the opposite for for the Jews. Our heart for the Jews should be not that we see them as scapegoats who we ought to hate, not as we see them as oh they're just they were just the worst people look what they did to the prophets and look what they did to Jesus. No, our heart should should break for them. We should pray to the Lord that they would repent and call on his name and be saved. Finally then, these chapters are about the eternal plan of God and that in itself is intensely practical for us. It's easy in the midst of our struggles of our lives to lose sight of the big picture and to forget that God has a plan that he's actually accomplishing. We look at what's going on around us. We wake up one morning this week and war is on and we're wondering if that means World War III and we don't know what it means and we look at the world leaders and they're all pathetic except the bad guys and we go, what's going to happen to us? And it's easy for us to forget God's still on his throne. God's eternal purposes are are being accomplished, and he's not rattled. He hasn't lost track of what's going on with us. He is faithful, and he has a plan that that our lives are part of a much, much bigger plan. Our lives factor into this, this eternal, glorious, global plan of God, but it's a plan that's far bigger than our problems or our circumstances or our anxieties. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's, it's his plan. It's about his glory, his good purposes. And, and friends, it is refreshing to remind ourselves of that. It is refreshing to look at a scary world or to look at, at your own circumstances where it feels like everything is, is, is closing in around you and say, God is working out his good purposes and it is not all about me And whatever is happening in my life right now is for my good because I am hidden in Christ. So refreshing. And and this teaching that Paul is giving us reminds us that that's true. That's not just practical. That's essential if you're going to survive a Tuesday afternoon. We've got to know that. That, that's ultimate reality, and we need that perspective that that comes here so so these chapters are actually intensely practical and and, and relevant for us that the answer to the question in verse number one here of chapter eleven is very important. what Paul says, "I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because the answer to that is going to tell us about God's relationship to the church as well and so The heart of the issue for us is, could God possibly reject the church? The church, capital C, us, Christians, his people, believers. That's a hugely important question, and Paul is going to answer it definitively. He's not going to waste time in answering it either. He's going to be really clear right up front before he launches into further teaching. And so from chapter 9, Paul has been dealing with the role of Israel in the plan of God. And he's been, been answering the question of why it would be that God's old covenant people, the ones who'd been given the scripture, given the promises, given the law and the prophets, the ones through whom the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, had come in the flesh, how could this people reject the gospel? How could this people reject the Messiah? How, how could this privileged people find themselves outside the camp when it comes to salvation? Had God's promises failed them? And He's been giving us a helpful framework to think through this issue. Number one, the big E on the I chart is this God is sovereign. So Paul says, You want to understand it? Look at God's sovereignty. Paul says this is all part of God's mysterious plan, and it's way bigger than we are. We need to trust him in it. Chapter 10, then he says now, the next level, look at man's responsibility. God has made himself known. It's clear Everyone knows, and so man is 100% responsible for his unbelief. Mankind is responsible before the Lord to believe him and to obey him, but Israel, in her disobedience, refused to believe. And now in chapter 11, Paul is going to restate the question himself. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And his answer is emphatic. Those next words, by no means. There's no stronger expression he could have used in the Greek. By no means absolutely not. And then Paul's going to offer us in this passage four proofs that God did not reject his people. First is a is personal proof. Looking at verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's first proof, that, that it's, it's beyond even asking the question of whether God would reject his people, is Paul says, just look at the proof of my life. J- just look at me. Paul is a full-blooded Jew. He's a Jew's Jew. He, he's an Israelite. He's even of the tribe of Benjamin. Pa- Paul's Jewish credentials are top-notch. They don't get better than Paul's. And so Paul says, of course God hasn't rejected his people. Look at me. Look at me. I'm a Jew, and I'm a Christian. I belong to God. Of course he hasn't rejected me. I'm, I'm living proof. I'm, I'm exhibit A, that God has not rejected Israel. And by implication, as Paul reminds us of his Jewish pedigree, we remember who Paul was when he was operating in that Jewish pedigree. This, is, this Paul is the one who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, a violent murderous persecutor of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But Paul is saying there is nobody like me I, 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 was, I was well advanced beyond my, my counterparts. I was so zealous for God that I was seeking to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, if there was ever a time in the history of the church where the church was in any danger whatsoever of being totally squashed, it was this guy right here. It was Paul. Saul of Tarsus. But he continues then in the, in the next verse of Galatians 1. he says, but God set me apart before I was born. He he called me by his grace. He revealed his son to me, he says in verse 16. And so Paul's saying, look, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. If, If there's any Jew out there at all who should have been totally rejected by God, surely it's Paul. Paul, the number one enemy of the church. And yet Jesus Christ saved him. And so Paul says, just look at me. His own salvation is proof that God hasn't rejected his people. You you know the story of the Apostle Paul traveling on the road to Damascus. He He was locked into his mission. His mission for God to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He was not looking for Jesus to come save him. God took the initiative. God saved him. And Paul says, you don't have to look any further than my life to know that God hasn't rejected his people Israel. Second, he offers theological proof going on in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This word foreknew is central to Paul's argument here. And we've seen that word foreknew not that long ago in the book of Romans. If you remember from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, that's God, those whom he foreknew he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. This, this unbroken golden chain of redemption where Paul says everyone that God foreknew, He ultimately glorified. That that section of Scripture is called the golden chain of redemption because there's no breaks in that chain. There's no room for any dropouts. Everyone he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And everyone he predestined, he called. Everyone he called, he justified. Everyone he justified, he glorified. There's no room for anyone to fall through the cracks there. And so God's foreknowledge is not just that he knows the future and knows about us, but that's not what it means. It's, it's his for love for individuals, his eternal love for individuals, from before the foundation of the world. It is, it is His foreknowledge is God setting his saving affections on a person. That's why Paul can say everyone that he foreknew, he ultimately glorified. And God, Paul says, if God has set his saving affections on a person from before the foundations of the earth, he will surely not reject that person. God saves his elect, whether they're Jew or Gentile. He will, he will never reject those whom he has fixed his saving love on. God is not fickle. He will accomplish his saving purposes. And so that's Paul's second line of argument. It's this theological proof that God has has foreknown individuals that he will never throw out. Jews and Gentiles. Third, then, he continues in verse 2, offering biblical proof. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, So Paul points to this time of great wickedness and apostasy in Israel during the reign of wicked King Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel. During this time, the worship of Baal, this false god, was was flourishing, and Jezebel was destroying God's altars, killing God's prophets. You might remember in that story, Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal in this amazing showdown where they build altars and have a showdown. Whose God's going to show up? The God of Israel or Baal? God shows himself to be the one true God, sending fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice. The false prophets of Baal are all executed. It's a glorious day for Elijah, a major victory. God has shown himself powerful. He has exposed Baal to be a fraud. And within 24 hours, Jezebel has immediately threatened to kill Elijah. And what does he do? He runs away, and he hides, and he cries out to the Lord, and he says, look at Israel, look around, I'm the only one, it's me, that's it. I'm all alone. They have all rejected you. They have all abandoned you. I am alone. They all want to kill me. He felt isolated. He felt alone. And he did not have all the facts. And God reveals that to him in that moment. He said, I'm the only one that worships the true God. Everyone else is worshiping the Baals of Canaan. All of Israel, they have turned their back on you, God. I alone am left. And in verse 4, God corrects him. Verse 4 here in, in uh, Romans chapter 11, and he says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who, are not, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul actually inserts some words here. So, some words that if we just read the Old Testament account are not there. But Paul inserts them as he, as he recounts this story. Paul inserts these words, for myself, into that equation I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He, he's emphasizing something for us that is really important. It, it's God's grace that has kept them, th- these 7,000. Elijah and these 7,000 are, are, not kept, are, are not still in the faith because there's something wonderful about them that's not true of everyone else in Israel because they're such smart and good and decent and moral People. Notice God's grace. He has, he has kept them for himself. And friends, we look around at the world today and it might look like all the world has surrendered to Baal. We we see it in, in all kinds of ways. In fact, what's going on in the Holocaust of abortion is just Baal worship. They're, they're, they're doing the same things that, that, that went on there. And we may look around and say, there's nobody left. There's nobody left. The whole world has gone to Baal. But we need to remember not to judge by appearance alone because God will not reject his people. God would say to us, no, I've got 7,000. They're mine. I've kept them for myself. God keeps them for himself. God keeps a remnant for himself. He doesn't save everyone, but he does save his elect. He will keep them for himself. There is always a remnant saved by God all throughout history. There has always been a remnant that God has kept for himself. People who worship God, who obey God, who serve God, who oppose Baal and his false prophets, who are a light in a dark an evil world, who are a city set on a hill. And God has a remnant in every generation of redemptive history. Always has, always will. And so Paul points to Elijah, and then he looks at the Jewish Christians of his day, people like himself, and he says, here's your proof God hasn't rejected his people. Here it is right here. This is the remnant that God is keeping for Himself even today. And, and he draws the conclusion that just as there was a remnant then, so also there is a remnant now, because of God's gracious choice. That's the first fourth proof of this passage, a contemporary proof. Looking around at the world around him, in verse five, he says, So too, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God always keeps for himself. I've kept for myself 7,000, Paul says. And then he says, so now today, there's a remnant saved by grace. It's the only way anyone is saved. That's why Paul says what he says in verse 6. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. We need to understand what grace is. In all the ways we try to earn salvation or make it a product of our will or our desires or our goodness, it means we do not understand what grace is. There is only one way anyone is ever saved. They must be, to use Paul's words, chosen by grace. You cannot earn it. Paul says, if it works any other way than God choosing by his grace, then grace would not be grace. It must be solely because of God's free choice. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's that same picture that Paul's painting now for us in, in in the book of Romans. Of God before the foundation of the world, setting his saving affection on individuals whom he will save by his grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, This is God's election from eternity past, and it is all of grace, and it is all his choice. God chooses some sinners for salvation based on grace, based solely on God's unmerited favor and not on human works. And for grace to be grace, for election to mean anything, and again, election is just the word the Bible uses, For for that to mean anything, this election cannot be conditional on anything about us. It must be completely unconditional. It's not conditional on, on our human goodness. It is not conditional on our human will. That comes afterwards. That's not on the front end. That comes afterwards. There are no preconditions for God's choosing. It is a totally free, uninflu- uninfluenced choice on God's part. Otherwise, Paul says, grace would not be grace. If God just looks through the corridor of time, and the, the way many people deal with, because we all have to deal with the fact that the Bible talks about the elect and election and predestination. These are Bible words that make, a, make some people cringe, but they're in our Bibles, so we should actually feel good when we read them instead of cringing but the way they want to deal with it because they want to elevate man's will to the highest possible standard is to say god just looks through the corridor of time he sees who will believe him and he retroactively chooses them the problems with that are so significant it's almost an irrational thought it does what paul says here makes grace no longer grace It makes election no longer election. It means God looked into the future, learned something about you, and then picked you for his team based on how good you were. If we can't see that there's a problem with that, we need to do a little time thinking about the issue. No, no, it must be the uninfluenced choice of God setting his saving affection on individuals or as grace is not grace, it is earned. Or else all the glory does not belong to God. We get a little bit of it. Or else election is a meaningless word, and why would the Bible talk about it? But Paul's point here, and this is so glorious, is if God has fixed his saving affection on someone, if God has foreknown someone, foreloved someone, if he has elected them for salvation, then he will never, ever reject them. Every single elect person will be saved. Election is what Paul, the, the, the turn of phrase Paul uses in this passage is exactly what election means, chosen by grace. That's the language Paul uses in, in this passage here. It means to be chosen by grace. It speaks of God's initiative. It's his doing. It, he starts the process. It is his choice, and, and only the elect of God will be saved, no one else, but, friends, all of the elect of God will be saved, Jew or Gentile. All that God has set his saving affection on will be saved. Salvation from beginning to end is of grace. It's never based on human works. It is never the product of human will. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Philippians 1, six, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 12, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do humans have will? Yes. Do we have to have this This desire to serve God, to worship God, to submit our lives to God. Yes, we do, but that comes after he set his saving affection on us. God works in us to will this, and if he does not, we will not. That's Paul's teaching here, and it's so important for us to understand that it is God who justifies the ungodly to make them godly. The saved, then, will desire God. They will desire to worship God. They will produce the fruit of good works in their lives, but those good works are actually God's works. God gets the credit for it. It's He who who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God gets the glory for it. We don't get the glory for it, and we must understand they are the result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. God does not look through the corridor of time and learn something about us, that we are good people, ready to believe, and so chooses us. No, he must act upon us, and then we will. We will believe. We will obey. We will bear fruit in keeping with salvation. Godliness is a sure fruit of salvation. It always follows salvation. And so we got to be careful not to go too far in saying we're not saved by works. It doesn't matter what we do. Live however you want. It doesn't matter. If, you, if God chose you, that's all there is to it. No, you will prove with your life that God had not set his saving affection on you before the foundation of the world if you live a life of disobedience because his people obey. His people bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness is a sure fruit of salvation. It always follows 100% of the time. And so do you want to know? We've been a few weeks now. As Paul has been answering this question, really started in chapter 8, but as Paul has been dealing specifically with the issue of Israel, he has had much to say about election and predestination. For many of us, it's the first we've ever really heard someone teach on these things, other than perhaps to hear someone go, that's real bad, we don't believe that. And maybe your head's spinning and you're wondering, what does all this mean? Friend, here it is. Do you want to know if God has reserved you for himself? Do you want to know if he has chosen you? If he has chosen you by grace, as Paul says here, set his saving affection on you from before the foundation of the world. Do you want to know if that's you? Then examine your life. Examine your life. Have you surrendered your whole being, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, friend, you shouldn't assume that you're saved. You should tremble. You should fear the Lord's wrath. And you should call on the name of the Lord call on him for salvation. If that is not you, if you you will not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not assume that meeting him will be a good thing for you. You must call on the name of the Lord, and he waits, as we saw last week, with open hands for, for, for the humble sinner who calls on him for salvation. Examine your life. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, make your calling an election sure. Oh, there's no fatalism in Scripture when it comes to the topic of election. When Paul brings up God's sovereign electing love, God choosing the individuals whom he will save, in chapter 9, he goes right on in chapter 10 and says Israel's 100% responsible for her unbelief. Would that they would just call on the name of the Lord. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. He doesn't say, spend your whole time just wandering. Am I in or am I out? Did I ever have a shot in the first place? Call on the name of the Lord. Make your calling and election sure. You want to know that he set his saving affection on you before the foundation of the world and that he will never reject you or toss you out, that your standing with God is as rock solid as the Lord Jesus Christ is? Do you want that to be true of you? Then call on the name of the Lord. Make your calling and election sure. Walk in obedience. Obey His word. Obey His command. Surrender all of your life to Him. We, we start getting into theoretical thinking when it comes to this topic, and we start thinking, what does it mean about this person, and what does it mean about that person? And it becomes difficult for us to, to believe the clear teaching of Scripture because we got all this thinking going on in our head that, that's clouding our minds, these vain questions like Paul has has brought up in Romans chapter 9. Is that really fair? What does that mean about God? Friends, we're not responsible for anyone else's calling an election. We're to make our own calling an election, sure. The question is, do we love God? Do we keep His commandments? That's the test. That, 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 that's how we know. It's the obedience of faith That's how we make our calling and election sure, the obedience of faith. That's how we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, as Paul says. We examine the fruit of our lives. Is the obedience of faith evident in my life? Not am I perfect, not do I I never sin? Paul, near the end of his life, is still calling himself the chief of sinners. Is my life marked by submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That's how we make our calling and election sure. But, but Christian, here's the promise. God's covenant love endures forever. Forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. How could he? How could he when He has set his saving love on us, when he's fixed it on us? How could he, when Christ gave himself up for us, when he died on the cross in our place, bearing our wrath, how could he, when he has already declared over us, it is finished? How could he throw us away? How could he not keep us for himself? And again, we're not talking about God saving a person and that person living like hell for the rest of their life, but they're in because God can't throw them out. What does God tell Elijah? What does Paul tell us? I've kept for myself. This is about God's keeping. Keeping us in the faith. Because if it was up to us, we wouldn't. We'd blow it immediately. It's God keeping us in the faith. There's nothing more refreshing than that. There's nothing more encouraging to realize. It is, it is this same God who upholds the whole universe that is keeping me for himself. Jude 24 says, He will keep us from falling he will keep us from falling and present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy that's what's waiting for every single person on whom God has set his saving affection his gracious gracious choice what is waiting for us is that that God will keep us in this life from falling because otherwise we would and then when we stand before him, oh, it won't be the fearful thing. It won't be the fearful thing of those who, who refuse to obey the lordship of Jesus Christ. No, he will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Oh, there's no sweeter, there's no sweeter hope than that one. We are God's elect, his chosen, his beloved. We are the people of his grace. We are saved by the gracious choice and mercy of God, and he will never reject us or cast us off. There is nothing, friends, more practical than that knowledge. There's nothing more comforting than that knowledge. There has been nothing in my life that has been more of an encouragement to me to help me get through difficult moments in my life than that knowledge right there, and it is what God has revealed to us abundantly time and time again in his word. What a gracious, gracious God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation that we who are undeserving will become the objects of your grace. We who could never earn right standing with you have been granted it in Christ because of his sinless life, because of his... Substitutionary death in our place, that we have a a sure hope for the future to be presented before the presence of your glory with joy and rejoicing. Because the same Jesus rose from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of glory, where he intercedes on our behalf, keeping us for himself. We rejoice in you, we rejoice in your great salvation. We pray, Lord, that this fruit of salvation would grow in us, that we would be increasingly faithful, redeeming the time because the days around us are evil. And I do pray, Lord, for those who hear my voice that don't know you. Lord, the the, the evidence of their life is that they are outside the camp when it comes to salvation Lord, I pray particularly for those who came into this place believing that they were in. I pray in your mercy and your grace by your Spirit, you would reveal to them the desperation of their situation. Lord, that in your grace in your mercy, you would save them. Bring them from death into life. Bring them from blindness into sight. Lift the veil from their eyes to behold your holiness and to recognize their own sin and need. I pray you would do this, Lord, in your kindness to them. I pray that you would save them. We do pray, Lord, for, for those of ethnic Israel, the Jews, your, your old covenant people. We pray for their salvation. We pray that many would be saved for your glory. Pray, Lord, that you'd make us faithful in the days around us, and in, in the place that you have placed us, in the time that you have placed us, Lord, that we would, we would make the most of every opportunity for your kingdom's sake and for the joy of all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.